You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Juliet Eilprin, Climate and Environment Deputy Editor here at The Post. Thanks for joining us today for our two-part series on energy efficiency. Joining me now on the heels of COP26 to talk about how his city has championed energy efficiency standards is Mayor Marvin Reese, the mayor of Bristol, England. Mayor Reese, thanks so much for joining us here on Washington, yeah. Post. Uh, Washington Post Live. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Excellent. What we want to talk about is that obviously, let's start with the, with the news that we have. Seeing that COP26 just wrapped up this weekend, We'd love to know what are your takeaways on what was accomplished during this summit of nearly 200 nations, and what do you think might have been lacking out of the final agreement that was just forged on Saturday? Well, while there's some debate about it, I think clearly they've kept 1.5 on the table, which is uh, both the claim and, and, and the missed opportunity, isn't it? So it's still on the table. We're still talking about it. Uh, but getting into the uh, this specific commitment to move away from uh, coal uh, and fossil fuels is is obviously a, a little bit watered down. What I think was missing actually was not in the commitments, but was in the the ability to recognise the leadership role of cities in delivering decarbonisation. I think that the focus has been on national governments coming to an agreements between national governments, which in and of itself is problematic. Um, it needs to happen, but this zero-sum game between nation-states holds the conversation back because they can't work with our global interdependence. Uh, but we went there with C40, with Mayor's Migration Council, with UK Cities Climate Investment Commission, with the argument that actually if you focus on cities and the decarbonisation of cities, then work out how you get mayors the finance to be able to lead those processes of decarbonisation. It doesn't matter if national, well, it doesn't matter, but it's, it takes the pressure off of national leaders getting the deals done because mayors will actually begin to deliver. And I think that city's voice, that city's leadership uh, was the bit that was was missing. So you raise an excellent point. And I think for those, you know, for folks coming in fresh to these kind of international UN negotiations, they might miss some of the details that you're pointing out now. The idea that this is really a bottom-up process. I mean, the fact of the matter is you have this agreement that you know, gives a few details on on what our overarching goals are, but both it is each individual nation that needs to deliver on the commitments that that country is making. And more importantly, it's really the local and, you know, regional officials that have to put the policies in place along with national leaders to make sure that greenhouse gas emissions are cut. So could you detail, in, you know, a little bit more when you're looking at it in terms of what local leaders can do to ensure that we're headed on this path to sustainability. What are some of the kind of most important contributions you think local leaders can do to ensure that these nations, whether they are large or small, are delivering on those climate commitments in the context of, of this UN process? Well, well, the specific things we need to do at the, at the city level are build homes, retrofit homes, put the right homes in the right places. So. We will build more densely on brownfield sites rather than sprawling building dependency on, on transport systems. We'll also deliver mass transit systems, decarbonised transport offers. Even today, I was uh, talking with uh, my team 
And we've just announced that our Meals on Wheels service uh, that takes meals out to older people who might be isolated, less able to cook, our fleet of vehicles that are going to be delivering those meals are, are moving over to electric. And we've been able to do that. It's not just a case of having the engine. Those vehicles need to have heating facilities and refrigeration facilities to make sure the food arrives fresh. So from the big infrastructure uh, projects, uh, like putting in heat networks, ground source heat, water source heat, decarbonized heat sources and distribution to what we do with people's homes are all what we do uh, at, the, at the city level. But can I just say, I'll just flip it a little bit. I, I don't think it is simply the case of Low, of city leaders doing delivering what national leaders actually uh, put in policy that that, I, that model of governance we've moved on from that in many ways it's the cities that are pushing uh, and asking national government to support them to get done what they want to get done in my city of Bristol we've mapped out our roadmap to decarbonisation but it costs ten billion pounds to get there I work with a network in Bristol in, in the UK called the UK Cities uh, uh, Climate um, investment commission we've mapped out 205 billion pounds worth of decarbonization opportunities across the 11 biggest cities in the uk which have which would have a massive impact on the uk's uh, carbon emissions we've mapped it out but as cities we don't have access to that finance so the work we've been doing is is, is focusing on what national governments need to do to support cities not to just get public money, but how they can support us to go and get that international finance. That's the same story for, for say, Mayor Yvonne Akisori in Freetown in Sierra Leone as well. How do those cities in the global south get access to that finance? In many ways, national governments have to catch up with the scale and pace of delivery uh, city leaders, city leaders uh, uh, you know, have aspirations for. Well, you're touching on a really interesting theme, right? Because the whole idea of how to mobilize the money for these climate friendly investments was a huge issue in the ongoing discussions. And again, as part of both national discussions we're having here in the United States right now, as we're debating whether we whether President Biden's and Democrats are gonna be able to pass a massive uh, tax and spending bill that would make these kinds of investments. So when you look at what's happening in England, is your sense that basically you're getting policy support from national leaders, but the money is 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 not entirely there for you to pursue everything that you're trying to do. And to what extent do you think that the private sector can provide money for the innovations you're doing? Or is this really something where you're going to have to have governments, whether it's in Britain, in, in other countries, both rich and developing, that are going to have to you know, really provide the funds to execute on the plans that you've outlined? Well, the policy support, policy support is a mixed bag. Um, you know, it's and it cannot be separated from finance, making a commitment uh, or setting a standard, but then not talking about how you're going to get it done. And it all has to be paid for is meaningless. That's just a uh, gesture. So that's a that's a major, uh, you know, major issue for us. As myself with other cities, we're going into COP uh, saying that any commitments on decarbonisation, be they at a national level or an international level, have to be matched to real places. Right? They have to be matched to Philadelphia, Bristol, Freetown, Lahore. They, decarbonization happens in real places, not in international abstracts. They have to be attached to measurable outcomes that are set against actual dates, and all that needs to be set to finance. If any of those, every, any of those are missing, we've got a problem. No business would go into a future without all those things uh, being in place. We can't tackle an issue as 
uh, challenging as potentially chaotic of decarbonisation uh, without without that kind of uh, structure. In terms of the, the private sector, it absolutely has to be in the game. Uh, one is it's in private, it's in the private sector self-interest, right? They want stable markets, we want resilient uh, consumers. Uh, a businessman in Bristol once said riots are not good for inward investment. Chaos is not good for the economy. We've seen that with COVID. So they need to invest in a more uh, a stable future. But the sums of money we are talking about are not in the public sector alone either. So they have to step up, whether it be uh, you know a commercial investment or whether it be uh, philanthropic um, investment in the ability of, and I'm going to focus on it because that's where I'm at, cities to deliver the mass transit systems, the organised urbanisation to uh, that, that will allow us to develop, to provide homes, to meet our population's needs uh, in a way that doesn't destroy nature and doesn't uh, drive co more carbon into the atmosphere. Let's talk about buildings and net zero goals, given that buildings are such a, a critical part of, of this equation, right? They're responsible for something like 40% of the global energy consumption and one third of greenhouse gas emissions. So is green renovating or green building something that can really help countries achieve the kinds of net zero goals that they're striving for when it comes to, to mid-century to 2050? What do, you, what do you think about that? Well, it, it has to be. Um, so we're, we're, I, I take my city as an example. It's a challenge I put to people all the time. Uh, as you know, as a mayor, I've got to deal with, you know, 100, 102 priorities, right? <laughs> I get a single issue campaign coming in. So we're, we're a city of 42 square miles. We're a population of 465,000 people. Right? That population, we have a housing crisis today. Um, Bristol is one of the most unaffordable cities um, in the UK for housing. Uh, we have 15,000 on the waiting list. We have over a thousand households in temporary accommodation. One in four children in my city live in poverty. Uh, so we have all these, we have great wealth and, and, and big inequality within Bristol. We have to meet that housing crisis, uh, but the city's not getting any bigger, right? But we have to meet that challenge in the face of a climate and ecological emergency. So the question is not, do you build houses or not? We have to build houses, right? The question is, what kind of homes do you build and where do you build them? So it does mean that we have to build net zero um, housing. Then the challenge for me comes in that those can be more expensive to build. So I may go into a deal with a developer and they say, well, if you were building houses, you know, that produce carbon emissions by 80%, you, know, you could have 35% affordable. If you're going to ask for 100%, you can only have 20% affordable. So you can see the money begins to, to bite and some groups don't, don't understand this. So we have to have put money into those, into the more efficient housing. And we know that, that that's absolutely essential because we need affordable, but we need decarbonized housing as well. The, the other complexity comes when we begin to look at brownfield sites in the middle of the city. Put in zero carbon homes, four miles from the main retail, residential, entertainment zone is it defeats its own purpose we need to build like the broad bank says you know pyramids not pancakes in you know on brownfield sites in the middle of the city but brownfield sites can be more complicated to bring forward particularly in a city like bristol when they're former industrial sites then we have diesel in the ground or arsenic or we even found a cholera pit underneath uh, a, you know a site in the middle of the city so again it takes more money to make sure that we get our share of affordable and we're decarbonizing so we're doing the the environmental justice and the social justice, what we call a just transition in our journey.
that's a, that's a really good point. And so when you see, you know, when you talk about exactly kind of tackling a few different things at this time, right? Kind of the 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 communities that have been most hurt by by traditional pollution as well as greenhouse gas pollution, and how to address that. Um, is there an example of, for example, you know, could you detail a little bit more how there's there's one project that is now, you know, whether it's dealing with these landfills or something else, that's made a concrete impact on Bristol residents' lives that, again, could potentially be replicated when this conversation is something that so many countries across the world are now having about how to address historic injustices and shift our trajectory so that we're going to a place where we're tackling those at the same time what we're addressing climate change? Yeah, so I'll give you one. It's tackling, tackling fuel poverty within the city. I, and I tell you, it's a very real example. I was being visited by Labour leadership uh, not too long ago, and I went to a home and I was going to, uh, one of our housing developments, Ashton, uh, Ashton Rise, which is just on the, the edge, well, on the edge of the city uh, uh, boundary. Um, I knocked on the door. Uh, the woman that came to the door uh, was a Syrian, had come to the UK as, you know, as part of the, you know, the refugee crisis. As her door opened up in the uh, winter period, heat came out from the door. When I talked to her, these are the homes that have ground source heat. She didn't even have the heat and turned on. But the efficiency of the home, the source of the heat, the decarbonized source coming from ground source heat was providing a home, a warm home, which means that people aren't choosing between heating um, and eating, which is hugely important. This is the dilemmas that many, many mayors will know that the, some of the poorest people in their, their cities face. I guess in hot cities, it's between heating and cooling uh, their homes as well if they have air conditioning. But, and, and I think, again, at COP, one of the messages we gave is there, are, there is a perversity or a collection of perversities in this climate challenge. And it's that you know, the exploitation of the planet has happened hand in glove or the exploitation of people. And actually the robbery of human rights has been a pathway to the exploitation of planets, probably most explicitly shown in the, with the plight of indigenous peoples. The perversity comes then that those same peoples are getting hit first and hardest by the consequences of climate change. Not just indigenous peoples, but people who live on the most marginal land prone to flooding, or those people that live who are gonna be most susceptible for over, to overheating at cities as well. It's the poorest, the most vulnerable who've been exploited then suffer from the consequences of climate change. Now the danger we face is that those very same people who are gonna be most at risk from falling on the wrong side of the economic restructuring we have to go through if we're gonna decarbonize the way our economy works, they'll be most vulnerable to not having the skills to transition to a decarbonized economy, losing their jobs. So there's a moral importance to making sure we have a just transition. Uh, but I'd say there's a political importance because if people start losing out economically, we'll have predatory, opportunistic, extremist politicians coming around trying to hoover them up in their loss of hope. We've seen it in the UK around Brexit. Dare I say, we saw it in the US with your own uh, previous president. Right. And um, before we run out of time, I want to ask you a, a politics question, which is since you entered public life, can you give a sense of how being, for example, green minded has become more important and what role has it played as you've been in office? I mean, one of the interesting issues here, right, is that how much tension and pressure do you feel to deliver 
on pledges which are tied to, for example, being fulfilled by 2050. Um, I'm sure you might be reelected many times, but I don't know if you're planning on being in office um, uh, three decades from now. So if you could talk a little about you know, what, what you've seen, for whether it's for you or other British politicians, when they're running for office and setting these kinds of, of climate-oriented agendas. Oh, there's huge pressure. And there's, but it's, it's a welcome pressure, just like there's pressure to make sure our children are fed, um, you know, and people aren't dying in the streets from, uh, from getting caught up in gang culture. I mean, this is just one of the other things that we have to do. It's massively, um, you know, hugely important. Uh, so it's a pressure we welcome. I think me, from where I am on the political spectrum, the point I make there in my challenge to environmental groups is you cannot, you, you cannot step into people's lives if their biggest threat, where concern is how they're going to feed their children tonight and say, I know you've got a problem with feeding your family, but I've got a bigger problem. There's an existential threat to the planet because they're worrying about their kids getting enough to eat today. So from my position on the political spectrum, it's to, to stress in the environmental movement, it has to be inclusive and it has to take poverty seriously, because if it doesn't, it's a middle class luxury and, and quite often a white middle class luxury, to be perfectly frank. So we, we you know, that's our that's that, that's our message. We take it centrally, but it has to, to fit within that broader suite of challenges we all take on as city leaders. Well, thanks so much. That's all the time we have today. So we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Marys, for joining us here today. Thank you, my, my pleasure to be with you. Glad to have you. And I'll be back in a moment with our next guest, David Hochschild, Chair of the California Energy Commission. Stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, everyone. I'm Chica Odua. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jens Birgensen. He's the president and CEO of Rockwool Group. It's one of the world's largest makers of insulation materials. He's going to talk to us about how we can actually use buildings to help mitigate climate change through energy performance. Jens, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. All right, let's get started. We're hearing this phrase, green transition, more and more these days. And of course, this conveys the idea of how governments and businesses can actually utilize technology to help protect the natural world that we all share and live in. But a lot of these conversations around climate change usually focus on reducing toxic carbon emissions. But I understand that the Rock World Group is actually looking at something different. You all are looking at how to reduce overall energy demands in buildings. Can you talk about how this also plays a role in the green transition? Yeah, the built environment today emits um, about one third of the CO2, the carbon emissions, and it also com consumes a, uh, about one third of the energy. By doing energy renovation, you will reduce those emissions. Um, if you look at the building stock, 75% are energy efficient and the planet is limited. We cannot tear them all down and just rebuild them to new standards. So we need to fix them. And we can do that with uh, existing uh, renovation technologies and uh, uh, all the technologies already there. Excellent. And in terms of policy, it definitely looks as though Europe is progressing 
much faster than the rest of the world. For example, in 2020, you know that uh, the European Commission published what's called the Renovation Strategy to improve the energy performance of buildings. And that aligns with the Fit for 55, which I understand is a package of legislation to help the EU to reach a 2030 target of reducing emissions by at least 55%. That's a very ambitious target. Why do you think that we're not yet seeing such ambitious moves, at least on a national level, from the United States? I, I think part of it is, I think, Europe the governments have realized the multiple benefits of building renovation. It's a, it's a good way to stim stimulate jobs in the local regions. It uh, removes uh, energy poverty. It reduces the impact of expensive energy bills for the, for the people and it creates a healthy living uh, living environments. Uh, and Europe has certainly understood that more, but if you look at the challenges you see in Europe that Italy is moving very fast, California, New York, Seattle, New York, Boston are moving in the US. And uh, in a way the challenge is the same in both places. We need to move beyond pledges and get going with the action today. On both uh, in both regions. I'm glad you mentioned reducing expensive bills. That's a very good incentive for everyone. Can you talk about what we can all do in our individual capacities to do what your company calls doing innovation renovation right? Yeah. First thing is when when you renovate, you need to do deep renovation. That means not only paint the house. You need to reduce uh, the energy consumption with at least 60%, so that it's done and it really has the impact. The second aspect is you need to pick good, sustainable, circular material that lasts for a long time. If you do those two, you know that every house you renovate would contribute towards reaching the goal. We provide some of those products. Stonewall, for example, is a fire-safe circular uh, insulation material that fits perfect for that type of renovation. Very good. So we should do more than just painting our houses. <laughs> Excellent. That's Excellent fine. point for Yes, great. Thank you very much for that for that takeaway. So um, Jens, thank you so much for sharing your expertise. I hope that you enjoyed this enjoyed this and just as much as I did. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a good day. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello. And welcome back. For those of you just joining us, I'm Juliet Eilprin, Climate and Environment Deputy Editor here at The Post. Joining me now to talk about city planning and, and energy efficiency is the chair of the California Energy Commission. Chair David Hochschild, welcome to Washington Post Live. Good morning. I know, I know you're getting up a little early for this, so we appreciate it. You know, I'm on, I'm uh, on Glasgow time, so it's OK. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure your day starts much earlier. We want, we want to talk about what the state of California has done in terms of leading the charge for many other states in curbing its energy consumption. And to begin, we're wondering if you could tell us about how the shift to renewable energy has helped the state achieve some of its ambitious climate goals. Yeah, happy to do that. But first, let me just offer my congratulations to Mayor Reese. Uh, what an inspiration. I. Um, you know, that's the kind of person I'd love to see run for prime minister in the UK one day. And I think he really articulated an important and underappreciated principle here, which is that local and state leadership 
is really how change happens in our world. It's really from the bottom up. And what we need at the local and state level is support from uh, national government. And, and just to share with you an example, you know, in California, we've leaned in very heavily to renewables. So the, the modern global solar industry was born in California. The first utility scale projects in the world were here. Same thing with wind, first utility scale wind projects here. They have grown, uh, you know, expanded around the country and around the world now are the, the lowest cost, fastest growing energy industries in the world. And the same is true with electric vehicles, which is now our number one export. But the basic vision that we have in California is to get to 100% clean energy grid and then electrify almost everything and so and run it off this clean grid. And we're making a lot of headway. Today in California, we're at 63% carbon-free electricity on the grid, en route to 100%. Uh, and at the same time, we're expanding the reach of that clean electricity into new sectors like transportation. So we just hit this month a very significant milestone, reaching 1 million electric vehicles sold in California. We're adding about 650 electric vehicles a day. And we're also extending the reach into the building sector in our newest uh, energy code that we adopted in August, uh, mandates electrification uh, you know, in the building sector. And that's an important step forward as we move beyond fossil fuels. Great. And recently, as you're kind of alluding to, you announced new energy uh, efficiency standards aimed at expanding uh, electric appliances, for example, in new homes and businesses. Um, and obviously, this is a shift away from fossil fuels, including natural gas. Could you talk a little about what's the concrete impact of those new efficiency standards on, on the climate? Yeah, so this was a historic code that we adopted. Uh, in August. So every three years, the Energy Commission sets the energy code for new construction in California. We build about 100,000 new homes a year in our state, new buildings a year, uh, most of those being homes. And uh, what we did, first of all, uh, we added to our solar mandate. Three years ago, we mandated solar in every new home. Now we've extended that to all buildings, all new buildings in California, commercial and other non-residential buildings. Uh, and that's getting us about half a gigawatt a year. So just for perspective, the peak load of a city like San Francisco is about a gigawatt a year. So just for this one code on new construction uh, with the solar mandate on rooftops, uh, we're getting you know the amount to power San Francisco essentially every two years. Um, in addition to that, we are um, requiring greater electrification. So we're making every home electric ready, which means you have to have an electric panel sufficient to support an EV charger, electric induction cooktop, uh, you know, heating, uh, ventilation, uh, water heating, et cetera. Uh, and we're requiring that one of those major end uses, the two biggest being water heating and um, space heating, has to switch to electric. Uh, so we're estimating that you know, today in California, less than 5% of homes are, are all electric. Uh, this will get us to close to half of new homes being all electric. Um, and this is really building off the leadership of uh, nearly 50 cities in California that have gone out ahead of the state and are doing their own uh, electrification preferences or mandates on new construction. And that's, I think, been a model for us as well. Uh, and it happened with the solar mandate three years ago. We had a number of cities get out ahead and uh, do these solar mandates and really pave the way. So we're building on that, on that momentum. What will it take for the state to mandate an all-out ban on natural gas in new construction in California? You know, I'm curious of kind of what pushback have you encountered along the way, our colleague, Erica Werner just did a really interesting story looking at how Los Angeles aims to become the first major carbon neutral city in the United States um, by 
2035 and and wrote a lot about kind of the back and forth with the natural gas industry in LA as it tries to make this transition. So if you could talk about what that back and forth has been like and what it means for new construction as you're trying to shift to all electric, that would be great. Yeah, well, some of this, of course, is taking place in the courtroom. We did get sued by Southern California Gas Company, a, a lawsuit they ultimately backed out of. But um, I will say, I think it's important when we do these transitions that it be done in a planned way and in a graduated way. Uh, and uh, one of the things that we're very attentive to is that the transition be um, predictable and that builders be brought along. And so we have a very, very robust public process that we run for every code cycle. This last code, I think we did 35 public workshops around the state. We take input from everyone, including builders, architects, environmental justice groups, environmental groups, uh, utilities, and the gas industry, extensive um, engagement with them. Um, and at the end of the day, we I think there's a lot of embedded wisdom in the code as a consequence of this. Um, one of the things that is really exciting to me when we look ahead um, is the potential for cost reduction. And just to take as an example, I think the solar industry is an excellent example of that. So I come out of the solar industry. I was in Silicon Valley before um, coming to the Energy Commission. I got into the field 20 years ago. And at that time, the price of utility scale solar was 50 cents a kilowatt hour. It was the most expensive energy resource on the grid. Today, it's two cents a kilowatt hour. It's the cheapest source of energy on the grid. And that kind of market transformation is not actually that complicated. The cost reduction is driven by three things. It's innovation, automation, and scale. And it's mostly scale. And the same thing is true for electrification. When we look at appliances like heat pump water heaters, which have come down significantly in cost, um, as we create codes and invest in R&D, the cost of those appliances is going to continue to come down. There's huge opportunity for further cost reduction. And ultimately, these technologies are going to win on price alone. Um, in the interim, as we're coming down costs, that's where I think the role of government um, needs to be, which is just on driving those costs down, working with stakeholders to bring it mainstream. So to answer your question, I mean, we are headed for and need to get to a world beyond fossil fuels. I will just tell you, living in California as a native Californian, you know, for people who are not on the West Coast of the United States and haven't experienced these fires, this is it is unbelievable. I've never, I live in the Bay Area. Uh, I've never in my life seen wildfire smoke in the Bay Area until three years ago. Now we've had it three summers in a row. You know, my family got sick. We had to, we had to leave for a couple of weeks. Uh, you know, watching your kids go through that is horrific. And I think there is an incredible sense of urgency that all of us in California feel uh, because we're living through it and we're breathing this air. And so that has changed the politics around this. And you're having major companies, just as an example, Pacific Gas and Electric Company, which is one of the largest gas utilities in the country, wrote me a letter in support of an all-electric building code. I mean, this is just a sea change in the dynamics. And so the direction we're going is clearly beyond uh, fossil fuels, but we want to do that in a way that really um, makes sense, gets us there quickly, and can, can work in the marketplace. Since the average California uses 31% less electricity than the average American, what are Californians doing that the rest of us aren't? Well, one thing, our, our agency, so I chair the Energy Commission, which is a 700-person state agency focused on getting us to 100% clean energy future. And one of the features that is unique to California, we have vested in our commission the authority to set energy efficiency codes and standards. And so we do that for new buildings. We also do it for appliances. And a lot of this is completely below the radar, but it's very significant. So take TV standards, which we adopted a few years back. 
we said to the television manufacturers, you can't sell into our market of 40 million people, the fifth largest economy in the world, unless you meet these very stringent standards for your appliance. And that cut the energy use of TVs in half, saves a billion dollars a year. And actually, one of the nice features of being a big state like this is that manufacturers don't want to manufacture just for one market like California. In many cases, they end up upgrading uh, their whole manufacturing lines for the North American market or the global market as a consequence. So we've done that with a bunch of different appliances. Uh, from you know, it used to be a couple of years ago, you you plug in your cell phone or your shaver, and even when it's fully charged, it would continue to draw power because it's called vampire load because they weren't putting in. Uh, a super cheap, you know, 10 cent shutoff diode uh, because they didn't want to pay for that. And we said, no, you have to do that. Otherwise, you can't sell into our market. That saves $300 million a year. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that we are doing regularly, not just with energy, but also with water appliances, you know, faucets, shower heads, washing machines, dishwashers, et cetera. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that as someone who's covered, for example, the debate over what sort of carbon and mileage standards we should have for cars and light trucks, right? California has been an instrumental player just for that exact reason. You've seen it, um, you know, with all of this back and forth about what we should do. And we're expecting, you know, a final rule out of the Biden administration any week now. We saw that California insisting on stricter climate standards and efficiency mileage standards for cars and trucks made a huge difference in terms of what automakers were going to do in the entire country. Are there other examples? I mean, the TV one is really interesting. I didn't know about that until you mentioned it. Are there other places you would have us look where what's happening in California could potentially have ripple effects in you know, the way Americans live their lives? Oh, well, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we are doing a lot. So you mentioned vehicles. One of the standards we're just getting going now is a tire efficiency standard to require lower rolling resistance tires. That will apply to all 28 million uh, vehicles in California. And that's one of the things you do that. And also it'll extend the range of electric vehicles, right? Because you can get an additional one or two percent uh, range when you do that kind of thing. So, you know, I really subscribe to the philosophy of um, kind of relentless incremental improvements. I think that is actually exactly how we got to solar being the cheapest energy resource uh, in the market today is the technology is not fundamentally changed. We just made steady incremental improvements. And that for energy efficiency is one thing that's really exciting because the work is never done. There's always, even when you do a very strict energy efficiency code, because of the advance of technology, you can do another one uh, and still squeeze out more savings. And so just to you know, share a few uh, other uh, technologies that we've, we've been involved with, lighting was a big one. We essentially banned the incandescent light bulb a couple of years ago, required uh, LEDs, but with a very high color rendition, right? So the light quality is the same, which is one of the issues. And I think you know, it's important to learn from our mistakes as well as our successes. We had tried uh, some years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I think, on um, doing CFL lights, but the quality of the light wasn't there. And so people were required to install them, didn't work, they put in incandescence. We've really focused on quality, and now the entire lighting industry is switching to LEDs, which is the power of a big marketplace like like California. So that's a big one, but we're doing um, all sorts of other um, uh, steps. One of the, I, I guess, probably one of the most important things is what I'd call trying to make everything that connects to the grid a good citizen of the grid. And by that, I mean having the ability to manipulate wind 
you're charging your car. You know, what we really want is a solar or is a sort of electric vehicle happy hour where it's plugging in in the middle of the day when we have surplus solar on the grid and charging. Uh, and you can actually time uh, some of these devices, uh, you know, be able to easily pre-cool buildings when we have cheaper surplus energy uh, during the day. That's really what we need as we integrate to a greater and greater um, renewable uh, grid. And I'd say one of the, the, the things that I was most focused on on my trip uh, to the UK for the COP was offshore wind. So I visited the largest floating offshore wind project in the world, which is off Aberdeen, uh, not far actually from Donald Trump's uh, golf course. So he has to, uh, to look at that. Um, but we're going to bring offshore wind to California. We struck an agreement with the Biden administration. Um, and what a blessing it is to have a real uh, partner finally in the White House on this stuff. Um, the UK today gets 10 gigawatts of offshore wind. Um, they have a 60 gigawatt load and they're going to go to 40 gigawatts. They're going to get the majority of their electricity from offshore wind. Uh, which is after rooftop solar, I believe it's the single lowest impact form of electric generation in the world. And so we've struck an agreement uh, with the Biden administration for a 400 square mile zone off the central coast. And we're going to be moving ahead with offshore wind to power all these uh, electric appliances and electric vehicles that we're talking about. Got it. And, you know, you did not mention leaf blowers, which I know Governor Gavin Newsom is, is banning gas powered leaf blowers going forward. Uh, and that's actually something, again, we've written about here at The Post. And it's something, there's a change coming to DC in January. And this is this is another shift, which people kind of might not appreciate, but has a huge, huge impact. So you're right, there's- Yeah, that's, there's one, of my, that's one, of my, one of my pet peeves. I will say one of the things that enables all of this technology is lithium ion batteries. Okay, and we've seen an incredible cost reduction. So 10 years ago in 2011, lithium ion was $1,000 a kilowatt hour. Today it's 120. We have a credible path to get to 70 or $80. And that's gonna facilitate not just electric passenger vehicles and two-wheeled vehicles, bicycles and scooters, but all these things from leaf blowers to lawnmowers and all sorts of other things that have been until now powered by gasoline. And it's one of the things I'm, I'm most excited about when I look ahead. Great. And then we can have a follow-up panel discussion on how you get the lithium and the environmental impacts of that, which is a hot debate, uh, you know, at West as well as as here in Washington. But we'll we'll put that aside for now. And I did I did want to before we run out of time ask you a question about again the private sector because again as someone who's immersed in this all the time you see this you know constant tension between what can government mandate and what can the private sector do on its own. And some of the goals that California has achieved have been done not you know some have a lot has been done by imposing new requirements on industry and some has been done by working with the private sector and having them voluntarily shift in this direction can you talk a little about you know what's that push pull and where have you seen ways in which the state didn't have to impose a new requirement but was able to move with the private sector in a different direction yeah, so I think public-private partnerships are exactly the way to go. Push-pull is the right way to characterize it because there are things that often the private sector won't do on its own. They actually require some structure and stability and certainty, and that's really the role that government can play. So I think one of the best examples of that has been the renewable portfolio standard, which has barely been the dominant policy in the United States driving renewables mainstream. And you set a long-term policy um, to get to 100% clean energy over a period of time. And then the industry responds and innovators uh, invest and, and companies make decisions based on that. Um, and at the same time, on the other side, we are working to invest and support 
research and development. So our agency runs a billion and a half dollar program over the next 10 years to support clean energy research and development. And we're giving out grants all the time in partnership with the private sector for energy storage and new clean energy technologies. So it is a push-pull. I do want to applaud and lift up the companies that on their own um, have taken bold steps, you know, uh, going to 100% clean energy. I mean, Apple Corporation, I think it deserves credit. They went to 100% clean energy, you know, not just for their products, but also went upstream for their suppliers. Um, that kind of vision we we need uh, more of. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the good things that does uh, come out of the COP is some of the commitments. But, you know, you got to separate the wheat from the chaff because there's always people trying to make these big fluffy commitments. And it's really important that there be hard you know, deadlines and hard uh, goals that that and transparency around that. Um, but you know, we try to partner very closely. I will tell you, it's been really good for California's economy to have this focus on climate solutions. We get 53% of U.S. clean tech clean tech venture capital comes into California. Uh, as I mentioned, electric vehicles. Now we have 34 companies making electric vehicles in California. It's our number one export. So. It's definitely been um, a success story in our economy. It's the fastest growing economy in the world after China. Uh, and, and this, you know, climate solutions and various clean energy technologies are uh, certainly an important uh, part of that. We're almost out of time, but in the 60 seconds or so we have left, could you talk a little about since, you know, about 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from the built environment, when it comes to building efficiency, what's allowed California to lead in this area? Well, you know, I want to just give credit to the legislators 40 over 45 years ago who created the Energy Commission, because what is unique about our circumstances is not something that a lot of other states have, have done yet, but we are vested as an agency with the resources and the authorities to set uh, on a regular basis these appliance efficiency standards. And it really has driven an incredible amount of, of innovation. It's not something that has to go every time for every appliance for a vote of the legislature and be subject to a bunch of lobbyists and so forth. Uh, we have an opportunity to run a very thorough public process and then to come out with these decisions that are binding. And so that's been essential. I think it's a big part of why California is using so much less energy. Uh, I do think it has significant benefits beyond our state's borders, because as I mentioned, we're so big as a state that it does often force manufacturers to upgrade their lines uh, the manufacturing lines for for uh, markets outside of California, but it's certainly without that authority, I think we would not be you know where we are today. Thanks. Well, we will have to leave it here. Thank you so much, David, for joining us Thank here you. today. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.